I'd like to begin by wishing a very happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers among us. Your love, your sacrifice, your prayers, your management of the family, your patience and care, and your discipline uh, with the children are noteworthy and to be commended. We thank God for you, and we pray God's blessings on you. We also understand there's a, a wideness in the calling of mothering. Some of you are in the trenches raising your kids or your grandkids. Um, right now, perhaps with your husband or as a single mom, others of you are step or foster uh, moms, and they each have their challenges and rewards. Others of you have experienced loss through miscarriage, through failed adoption, through death, or maybe the, uh, in your particular case, the dreams of lavishing love on grandchildren have diminished uh, through, through time. Still others of you would like to be moms, but you struggle with infertility. Uh, maybe you're still single and waiting, and your life has unfolded differently than you had imagined. But we just want to say that we walk with all of you. And uh, sometimes these paths are varied and difficult, but we are your church family. And today, as we're encouraged in the scriptures, we rejoice with those of you who are rejoicing, and we weep with those of you who are weeping. We thank God for all of you, and we bless you. One thing of which I am certain, unequivocally, 100% of us have a mother, and so today we can uh, thank God and honor them. Perhaps they're still living, or maybe they've already passed, uh, but today we say thanks to God for them. They carried us, they gave us birth, they raised us. Each of them did the best job they possibly could, given the constraints that they faced and so our mothers are one of God's great gifts to us. Without them, we would not be here. So let's pause just to pray together. God, we begin by just saying thanks to you for your goodness and your grace in our life. Thanks for a brand new day that we could celebrate. Thank you, God, for our mothers. Uh, this world, Lord, would be an incredibly, irreversibly sad place if it were populated with just men. And, Lord, we just say thank you for the perspective and the reason and intuition and, and passion and nurture and beauty and wit that come with women, and especially our mothers. Thank you. Lord, we pray a blessing of strength and health and wisdom on all the mothers and grandmothers here today. Lord, we pray for those who desire to be moms, but for whom uh, in, in their life and in your providence that has not yet happened. Continue, Lord, to fuel their hope. And may our church family learn to love and encourage and bless and love and support uh, all moms. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come today and put power on this message to all of our lives in your name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to share a message uh, to encourage and affirm all women in God's kingdom. It's titled... the the women in Jesus' past. Genealogies occupy a very important place in the Bible. You don't have to read the scriptures very far until you come across one of these lists. Lists that in the language of the King James Version read, so-and-so begat so-and-so. They're called the begats. Now, in fact, you just have to read four chapters in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, to discover one of these 
lists, the first one in the Bible. And while they may seem somewhat boring and largely irrelevant to the 21st century reader, to the original audience in the ancient Near East, these genealogies were extremely important. Tracing the lines of ancestry uh, of an individual or a family was very significant. Uh, The right to rule or serve in certain occupations, to own property, to receive an inheritance, it often depended on lineage. So it's not surprising that Matthew, the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament, opens in chapter 1 with the genealogy of Jesus. If you have a Bible, you may want to open to Matthew 1, open your Bible app. Uh, we'll be reading a text. You can follow it along on the screens. In a larger sense, Matthew, because he was writing specifically to Jews, uh, was intending to show Christ's legal title to the throne of David, and in a larger way, the covenant that was given to Abraham. Now, it's noteworthy. I know you're trying to figure out who all those people are in that in that picture. Let me just introduce them to you. That's my father on the left with our grandson, Owen. And then that's me with uh, Owen when he was born. And then that's my son-in-law, William, my oldest daughter, Emily, when they had Ellie our second grandchild. So now we can all, like, go ah together. Um, it's noteworthy that in Matthew's Gospel, the genealogy that we're going to read breaks from the Jewish tradition of listing only the men, the men, father to son, and it, and it surprises us as it includes five women. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 1. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nation. Nation was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Skipping to verse 16, because I know you like are gripped so far by the riveting text. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, what's significant is that these five women were not, on the surface, notable or saintly women that we might otherwise expect to find in Jesus' genealogy. Let's take a look at their stories. The first is Tamar. Her story, unknown to most of us, is found in Genesis 38. Tamar was a Gentile, that means a non-Jew, and she married Ur, the son of Judah, who was the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of faith. Ur died because he was wicked, and his brother Onan rose up to serve his brotherly duty according to the law of Moses by marrying uh, Tamar. But he too suddenly died, leaving Tamar both husbandless and childless, which was a kind of double curse in those days. So now twice widowed and uh, still without children, she grew impatient and unwilling to wait for God to fulfill his promise, and so she dressed up like a shrine prostitute, 
and seduced her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her, whereupon she became pregnant and gave birth to twin boys, Perez and Zerah. And it was through Perez, who was now an illegitimate son, that the line of Judah descended eventually to Jesus. Truth is, nobody looks very good in this story. It reeks of human frailty, deception, prostitution, sexual lust, incest, and illegitimacy. And that's all we know of Tamar. There's really not a happy ending to this story, nor is there any other Holy Spirit commentary in the Bible. It's just recorded as a footnote in biblical history. The second woman on the list is Rahab. She was a Canaanite, a non-Jew, actually the hated enemies of Israel. And her story is actually embedded in the larger story of Israel's conquest of the walled Canaanite city called Jericho. When Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, sent spies into the city, they spent the night in the house of Rahab the prostitute. In exchange for safe passage out of the city, the spies promised to spare her and her family when the invasion took place. All she had to do was hang a scarlet rope from her window so the Israelites in the invasion could recognize her home. So she agreed, hid the spies, and when the king of Jericho sent messengers asking her to bring the men out, she lied and said they'd already left the city, when in fact they were hiding under barley stacks on the roof. She let them out of the window with the scarlet rope, whereupon they returned to Joshua. Now, it's a great story with many lessons, but we mustn't miss the fact that Rahab was a prostitute. That was her trade. In fact, Rahab is almost always identified in the Bible by that certain phrase, Rahab the prostitute. The spies hid in her house because the townspeople would have been accustomed to seeing strangers come and go at all hours of the night there. No questions asked. And when the invasion uh, came, she was spared and in due time became the great-great-grandmother of King David. So there you have it. Rahab, a prostitute, a Canaanite, hated enemy of Israel, and a liar. You wouldn't think she'd have much of a chance making Jesus' list, but there she is. The third woman in Jesus' past is Ruth. Perhaps the most significant point about Ruth was that she, too, was a non-Jew, was not in the descendants of King uh, uh, of, of Abraham, not God's chosen person. She was from the country of Moab. And this takes us back to Genesis 19, uh, the story of the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. On that dreadful day, Abraham's nephew Lot escaped Sodom with his wife and two daughters. Regrettably, on looking back in disobedience, Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. He and his daughters found refuge in a cave. His daughters, worried about their future, conspired to lure their father into sleeping with them. And so on successive nights, they got Lot drunk and slept with him. Both sisters got pregnant, gave birth to sons, one named Moab, the other Ammon. And these two boys, born of incest, 
grew up to found nations that would both become incredibly evil and they were the bitter, hated enemies of God's people, Israel. Now, the book of the Bible that bears Ruth's name tells of the relationship between Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz, the Israelite. Ruth's life was certainly difficult in its own right. She'd lost her father-in-law through death, and then she subsequently lost her husband and brother-in-law to death. And so now widowed, she left the the homeland of her upbringing to accompany her mother-in-law back to Bethlehem in Israel. And it was in the course of gleaning barley in wheat fields, because that's what poor people did to earn a living, she met Boaz. They were a very unlikely couple. But uh, in God's providence, they were brought together in marriage. They had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David, making Ruth King David's great grandmother. The fourth woman in the lineage is Bathsheba, whose story is perhaps the world's most recognized case of adultery, recorded in 2 Samuel 11. Now, King David was on the the roof of his palace when he happened to notice a woman of unusual beauty, and he summoned her to the palace. Now, in the historical context, King David is clearly the one in control. Uh, The difference in status and power would have made it utterly impossible for Bathsheba to resist David's advances. And what happened between them, while it's frequently called adultery, implying mutual consent, was actually probably much closer to rape. And so when you think of Bathsheba, think of the victim of sexual assault. Well, when Bathsheba told David that she was pregnant, he tried to trick her husband Uriah into thinking that the child was his. And when that didn't work, he had Uriah killed by placing him in a strategically hot spot in the battlefield. And then David took Bathsheba into his harem. The child that was conceived that night died soon after birth, and David's family and his empire began to crumble from that moment forward. Eventually, David did repent of his sin. He married Bathsheba, and they had another son, Solomon, who later succeeded his father as the king. But really, it's quite a result for a union that began in lust and ended in sexual sin and murder. I mean, there's just dirt all over this story. Don't miss the point, though. Bathsheba made the list. And then along comes Mary. Okay, that, that, the association, number one, 1966. That's the reason some of you didn't recognize it. So It's a great song. Look it up on YouTube. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, what we know about her is that she was extremely poor, most likely illiterate. At the time that the angel Gabriel announced her impending pregnancy to become the mother of the Messiah, she was unmarried. Engaged, yes, but unmarried. And so here's Mary, a frightened, poor, illiterate, unmarried, pregnant teenager, the mother of Jesus. Wow, it's quite a list, isn't it? 
the women in Jesus' past. These stories include incest, immorality, prostitution, lying, deception, sexual assault, murder, poverty, illiteracy, barrenness, death resulting in widowhood, prejudice against Gentile, hated outsiders, just to name a few. Why would God include these unlikely women in his genealogy? I can think of two very encouraging reasons. First, to powerfully offer all women hope in Jesus. Now, if we keep reading in Matthew's gospel, we'll discover in verse 21, and she, Mary, will have a son, and you, Joseph, are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph, Mary's husband, through a dream, saying that they were to name the child Jesus, because he would save God's people from their sins. Now, Jesus' name means the Lord saves. And that word saves is transliterated sozo in the Greek, the original Greek text that the New Testament was written. And it's a comprehensive word. It's a word that means to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction or injury or peril. It means to make well, to heal, to restore, to make whole and complete. It's a rich word in the New Testament. And so, ladies, this means that Jesus desires to forgive and heal and restore you, to save you. He wants to bring the love and the joy and the peace and the wholeness of his kingdom, his rule and his reign into your life, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. And in this sense, God offers all women hope in Jesus. I think that's one reason he included their names. Now, see, in the Bible's original record of the original creation of men and women, uh, we read in Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28 this, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the air and the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. So you'll notice several things in that Holy Spirit-inspired record of the original creation. First, the image of God requires both genders to be fully expressed, male and female. Maleness and femaleness are required in order to completely demonstrate who God is. There are things that both men and women bring to the party that are necessary for God's image to be on display. And so this is to actually celebrate the physical and emotional and biological and relational uh, differences between the genders as actually necessary in order to do a good job at displaying to the world who God really is. The point is, ladies, we need you each of you fulfilling your creation mandate, the reason God created you. We need you fulfilling that in order to see the kingdom of God come in all of its fullness and for the world to display 
uh, see the display of God's glory. Now, the second thing that I notice in verse 28 in the text is that the blessing that God put on creation has no gender distinction. There's no hierarchy here, but rather a God-given unity of purpose, male and female reflecting God's glory, ruling over and reigning and caring for all creation. And so because the Holy Spirit inspired this record, we can say, okay, this is God's original intention. Men and women created equally, called equally, blessed equally, destined to reign equally as we all fulfill our God-given purpose in the world. Now, sadly, since the fall of our original parents, Adam and Eve, into sin, we know that there's been a tendency by men, especially as a result of the curse that came on the earth, for men to dominate and oppress women, both married and single. And today, this curse still continues to manifest in all kinds of gender stereotypes and discrimination and oppression in many, many cultures, ours notwithstanding. Today we still see a rampant sex slave industry, exploitation of females, and occupational sexism expressed in harassment and a wage gap between men and women for equal positions. And all of this patriarchal uh, dominance and subjection of women came as a result of the curse, but was never God's intention in the original creation. It was never God's desire. And I think in a kind of metaphoric way, uh, the, the, the five women in Jesus' lineage, whose stories we've just heard, they represent the common experience of women in all cultures around the globe. And I know many of you women have suffered greatly as a result of the curse. Now, thankfully, as we've discovered, Jesus came to save. He wants to bring God's kingdom, and he wants to redeem women and men and children, but especially women. He wants to redeem uh, you from the curse and restore us all to God's original intent. Jesus came to save. Now, seen against the, the backdrop of Judaism, culture into which Jesus was born, the way in which Jesus taught and related to women was revolutionary. There goes Jesus being all radical again. You see, in the context of the Jewish religion, women were regarded as the source of all sin, and in that sin began with a woman, and thanks to women, we all die. But in stark contrast, Jesus elevated the place and status of women. He regarded women as created equal in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. So let me just offer to you these observations of Jesus' life and ministry to consider. The first news of the incarnation went to a young, unmarried woman, Mary. The first miracle was performed uh, for a woman, at her wedding, John 2. The first Samaritan convert was a woman, John 4. The first person told clearly by Jesus that he was the Messiah was the woman at the well, John 4. He ministered to a Canaanite woman, Matthew 15. 
healed Peter's mother-in-law, Matthew 8, allowed a woman with a negative reputation to wipe his feet with her hair, John 12. A ceremonially unclean, ostracized, marginalized woman was actually welcomed by Jesus and received his healing power as she touched his robe, Mark 5. In the parable of the lost coin, Jesus implied that the woman represents God, Luke 15. Prayer is illustrated by a persistent widow, Luke 18. Jesus blessed Mary to sit at his feet and learn, Luke 10, a group of women traveled with Jesus and supported him financially. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Jesus made a post-resurrection personal appearance to Mary Magdalene. And neither is there any gender distinction uh, in Jesus' mandate to the church that we now call the Great Commission, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Now, no doubt numbers of you are thinking, well, these, these events are not terribly earth-shaking, and I wouldn't expect so. As a 21st century Westerner, as we read the gospel through the lens of our current worldview, no big deal. But let me assure you that this was counter-cultural and completely radical in the day that it happened. And this incomplete list illustrates just how highly Jesus thought of women. So I think the inclusion of these five women from Jesus' past powerfully illustrates the hope that Jesus brings to all women, hope to be saved, delivered out from under the devil's power, and restored to the wholeness and the peace and the joy and the shalom, the favor of God in his kingdom. He wants every woman to experience being saved, forgiven, healed, and restored. There's another reason why I think the five are included, and that's to forever dispel the myth that there is one type of godly woman. Each of these five women, with all of their struggles and indiscretions and sin, and with all of their strengths and gifts and passions, was uniquely important and necessary to move God's story in history along. There is no one perfect Proverbs 31 woman in Jesus' family tree or in God's kingdom. Let me explain. In Proverbs chapter 31, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the writer, King Lemuel, describes his wife of noble character. And through the years, well-meaning but ill-informed men have made this description a literal checklist for the truly godly woman. You can read it for yourself. It's rather intimidating, ladies. It creates an unfair, thank you for that, amen, artificial high bar that few, if any, could actually accomplish. And I think that Jesus, the women in Jesus' past are included by Matthew to illustrate that there is no such thing as the godly woman. Matthew's list uh, of the women in Jesus' past forever shatters the myth that you must all fit one stereotype 
to be a truly godly person. God used each one of those gals. Each was essential to the story of God moving through history. God honored Tamar's sense of justice in goading her father-in-law Judah to do the right thing. God used Rahab's faith in the scarlet thread of redemption and deliverance, foreshadowing the blood of Jesus that would deliver us all. God used Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law eventually to lead her to faith in the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God used Bathsheba's commitment to nurture as she became the mother, the respected mother of a king, thus securing the throne for her son Solomon. God used Mary's humility in accepting the angelic assignment. And at the same time, God did not whitewash or sanitize or Photoshop Photoshop out of the history their weakness, their failure, their sin, and the pain of their life circumstance. One author captured it really, really well when he said, God writes a straight story with crooked lines. So ladies, each of you uniquely matters to God and is necessary to move God's storyline through history. You are absolutely unique. Your past, your history, the circumstances of your conception and your birth, your family constellation, your education, your teenage experiences, your personality and temperament, your passions and your gifts, your life experiences, your strengths, your weaknesses, your childhood religious education or lack thereof, your relationships, your sexual history, your marriage, your marriages, your children, your grandchildren, your stepkids, your step-grandchildren, your in-laws, your outlaws, where you lived, what you did, what you didn't do, your deep pain, your crushing disappointments, your yet unanswered prayers, your sweet victories, those surprising blessings and deposits of God's favor in your life. They're all part of your unique story, the story that God is using to move his story to its grand conclusion at the end of time. You are uniquely important and necessary in God's economy. You're necessary for God's story to move along in the home and on the job and in the classroom and in the boardroom and in the factory and in the office and in the hospital and in relationships and on the web and in writing and in speaking and in serving and in creating and in making art and in music and whatever. You are necessary. And so I, I just want to go on record as saying the vineyard wants to bless all women as you discover and fulfill the destiny for which God has created you. You are now a vital part of God's unfolding story, even though the devil may convince you that, you know, of what significance is your life? Does my life really matter? Does it? Does what I'm doing really make a difference? Yes, it does. 
Yes, it does. Uh, as a homemaker, as a humanitarian, as a scientist, as a businesswoman, as a missionary, as a student, as an entrepreneur, as a, a teacher or a nurse or a researcher or a pastor or a graphic designer or a counselor or a daycare provider or an administrator or a, a retail clerk or a retired person or a food service worker or a, a, a writer or every other conceivable occupation that's represented right here in our family. You are necessary. There is no one mold, ladies, for the godly woman. So just take that myth and chuck it. Because there's no artificial, thank you, Mimi, way to go, all right. She just threw it out, for those of you who weren't watching. There is no one mold of the godly woman. No, the mold is, is that what you are and what God's destined for you to do is unique, absolutely unique. And you are vital to the kingdom advancing. Where you work, where you live, where you play, where you go to school, where you, where you do your shopping. So today we celebrate, on Mother's Day we celebrate this rich diversity in the body of Christ by honoring and blessing and affirming the role of every woman in this room. We commend you. We say, whether you are a teen, whether you are a young adult, whether you are middle-aged or maturing, whatever your place and station in life is, no matter what your story is, we want to bless you. We thank God for you. Ladies, you are the good fruit of God's good creation. That is the truth. And we want to... Bless that. You were created in his, in his image. You are called, and Jesus wants to save you, deliver you, make you whole, and, and restore you to the, the fullness and completeness of his order. We want to bless that you are being restored and equipped for the unique destiny that he has for each of us, each of you, and we thank God for you. Lord, we're, we're just thrilled to be able to partner with you in a, in a small way, but not insignificant way of, of blessing and honoring the, the good fruit of your creation, Lord, in the women among us. We thank you for them. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, you have, uh, like great things for every single one to do, unique things that only they can do. And Lord, I pray that you would, Really train and equip and help our church family be, be a place that nurtures and encourages and heals and restores and supports and loves the women among us. Lord, we can see glimpses of your bigger purpose as we, as we unpack the Bible. And I pray that you'd continue to, to like show us more of what your intention is. Lord, in, in the eternal state, there'll, there'll be no hierarchy. There'll, there'll be no subjugation. There'll, there'll be a grand celebration of men and women before you ruling and reigning equally. And I pray that if our job is to bring the kingdom to the earth today, that you would, you would better equip us to do that countercultural as it might be. And now, Lord, as we continue worshiping you with our gifts, and our voices in song, we pray that you'd accept these gifts for, for what they are, just tokens that we want our life to count for you. Receive them, Lord, in the intention in which they are given in your name. Amen.